This is the Robot Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Robot Podcast. Today we're sitting with the founder of Citizen Scientific Workshop, who is Dave Ultis. And Hello. Dave, how's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? Doing well. So, Dave, uh, Citizen Scientific Workshop, I kind of consider a STEM or a STEM startup almost. But how would you describe it? Give us your mission statement. Yeah. So, um, I guess you can fit it into any uh, emergent acronym you want, but we do focus on. Uh, science, technology, and engineering, arts, math, entrepreneurship, a lot of stuff. So where I like to concentrate most, though, is in those uh, the science, technology, and then another uh, sort of emphasis per project. So it might be on the engineering, or we might have a creative outlet, but we're always using those main factors, those core, core features of science and technology to springboard into other areas we m- might want to study. So CSW embodies that, and uh, we use 21st century maker tools to develop our own lesson plans and projects just to kind of deliver affordable, fun projects for all ages or walks of life to just explore together as as sort of a factor of our lives, you know, those adventures you can have with, with science and technology, and I love robotics and 3D printing and stuff like that, so... Yeah. So you're really looking to make STEM accessible to people through the design of new kits and lesson plans that go along with them? Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what what made you want to get into this? What's kind of your background and how did CSW get started? Oh, man. I guess uh, ever since I was a little kid, I've always been taking stuff apart and, uh, you know, imagining new things to make and just kind of iterating them however I could with whatever I had. Um, I grew up with uh, three solidly packed junk drawers and a mom that said make do so whenever I was bored she'd kind of send me there and I'd uh, come up with my own devices and always wanted to be an engineer it always felt really good to build with my hands I I like to make up new things and invent stuff and um, use my hands with my curiosity to take stuff apart deconstruct it and figure out how it worked, so that kind of developed into uh, taking enough stuff apart, so I wanted to put things back together and really kind of funnel my curiosity into, you know, teaching myself new things, and there's just, at the time, I guess I wasn't really seeing a lot of uh, access for people, like, you know, sort of launch pads for people's ideas, and it started this thought of, like, well, what if I can show somebody something with code make a simple robot but it doesn't just end there it makes a launch pad so when they have their own ideas which is hopefully what you're trying to foster is just someone else's spark you know and and really get them going on similar paths uh, they can do that with the kits you know so that led me to develop just simple simple kits that you could get started using for various robots or puppets. Um, really early on, it was like musical instruments. I thought I wanted to make, you know, guitar pedals and drones and things like that, um, like drone synthesizers and stuff. But what I really fell in love with was making the actual 
manufacturing uh, capabilities happen. And so I was coming into that right as projects like RepRap and DIY CNC's were just kind of coming around in a first wave. It was really sort of that big hype wave that led to all of the affordable 3D printers we know of today came from projects like RepRap that were community-oriented and encouraged you to become a developer and your usage of the project was to develop stuff. And I just fell in love with that. So um, I jumped down that rabbit hole head first. And 10 years later, we've been making and selling our own 3D printer models. Uh, we're starting to collaborate on new printers and stuff, which is really fun. Um, uh, robots projects from basic programmable robots to uh, little robots projects that like five-year-olds can build in case they've never, I mean, every five-year-old may not have built their first robot yet. So it's kind of nice to develop something and give them something that includes them because I think people wait till naturally want to wait till their kids are a little bit older and you know I think exposure can happen at any time so projects like that um, stage puppets augmented reality projects that we're kind of combining with the robotics platform to make something new and things like that so yeah. fell in love ah. with it at a really early age Fair enough. So, you, do you have? A, do, are you formally educated in robotics and technology, or are you fully self-taught? I'm I'm uh, fully self-taught. Cool. I guess I uh, I learn from everywhere. I, is the main thing. Uh, anytime I, I haven't heard of something that somebody's talking about, I, I just ask, "What's that?" and clamp up and listen. You know. Um, yeah, actually, so robotics didn't start for me until after I, uh, I thought I was going to college to be a, like a publisher and I kept, uh, making my books and my art projects for those classes, uh, documenting all the stuff I was building. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't know where I was crossing the point, but I wasn't doing so hot at uh, the liberal arts part, but the engineering was great. <laughs> and uh, eventually, actually, due to you know lack of access to funds, and I, yeah, I had a full time job, I had to I had to choose between going into a you know depressing amount of debt to stay in school or stay solvent and work full time. And it kind of took a hit to my ego, you know, because. Here I am, not really furthering my education at all. So, day one of that new schedule, where I had to drop out of college, basically, I uh, I examined how much I was already spending on school supplies, and decided that that was going to be what I spent on myself for educational stuff. And uh, you know, just stopped hanging out with my friends that all they wanted to do is play video games. You know, uh, you know things like that. Just spending what idle time I'd have teaching myself uh, first circuitry and then how to etch circuits and uh, how to hack musical instruments and stuff. Kind of That was nice because while I was making a lot of mistakes, it would just blow up and I'd go grab a new toy from the thrift store. <laughs> uh, taught myself how to read schematics and uh, use Eagle CAD and then just kept step, you know, stepping stones all the way up to early 3D printer development and more robotics all the time. So, yeah. So, when this was kind of happening, what were the, the resources that you were using to teach yourself these kind of things as you were going through this transition? Uh, just like when I was a little kid, 
everything found um, or thrift store bought secondhand. Uh, my first tools that I bought were like a 1099 Radio Shack soldering iron, a uh, couple sample parts kits, which I quickly learned, you know, weren't. I, I could go other places for parts and stuff, even just upcycle them out of other electronics. Um, yeah, lots of lots of secondhand found stuff like that. Soldering iron, an early multimeter, you know, like a cheap cheapo. But as far as like the the, the knowledge content and stuff, and you said you'd even been part of the the, the RepRap project, is that how did you find those or get access to those? What was the medium where you got connected with all this information? Oh, so just endless amounts of online research. Okay. If if I didn't have anybody around me, I was basically just asking questions to the great Google Aether. And rummaging around, you know, forgotten or obscure parts of the internet, trying to find like-minded groups. You know, I found that with uh, a website called Let's Make Robots in 2008, and then RepRap was just starting in 2008 as well. And so they were kind of obscure online communities, but they had solid forums, and there was great conversations, and they were kind of the conversations that um, I wasn't having necessarily in person with people that I knew on a daily basis, but I could go there and I could participate, you know, long hours and to just get really deep with our, our concepts and questions. And and then what happened is uh, through those interests, I, I got a job um, kind of helping start up a, like a local surplus store. And it was a like electronics and industrial surplus. And there I really kind of found a home and I was able to anchor a spot where other like-minded people like in the locality in in the treasure valley where we were able to meet in person and start having those conversations just informally like over the desk you know um so that was really great too and that helped kind of solidify and make it into a mindset that our local community had here right around 2008-2009 versus strictly like online research and stuff so i have i have best friends i've known for over a decade now that live in Romania we've never you know or the EU or everywhere across the world and we've never met in person um, but we're just you know we know so much about each other you know there's like a, a very real kinship that happens there so fellow roboticists are a universal quorum <laughs> <laughs> oh for sure it, it is interesting, though, in that yeah, your company is based in Boise, and for anybody out there who's not familiar, Boise is large for Idaho, but it's small compared to anywhere else in the world. So, yeah. And we don't really have much of a, a technology community here. So what was it? You, you kind of mentioned it. You grabbed the people who were here, local, who were kind of interested in the things, but in starting a company that is heavily based in STEM and technology particularly at a time when STEM wasn't really as popular as it is today. Back in 2008, STEM wasn't as big of a push. Right. What was kind of that situation of starting a company like that in Boise, Idaho? Uh, a lot of it was uh, trying to trying to educate people on the actual uh, faculty of hobbies like this, like salvage and, and you know recycling and sustainability and building new things with them. At the time in Boise, there were a thousands of people were laid off from 
what tech companies there are here. You know, some some giants kind of have some uh, some bases here, and uh, yeah. Th- so there were there were many many engineers who had twenty or thirty year careers they were being laid off from, and so they needed a, a place to go. And I really saw a lot of frustration that there wasn't much outlet. Uh, there was there wasn't an industry looking for them or, or wanting them. Even the like you know the engineering industry at the time wanted you know more affordable entry level graduates, and they weren't there yet. You know there wasn't that big push for STEM, and so what I saw all these guys doing was uh, well uh, just trying to find ideas for them. They were starting to collect in small groups of two or three people. They all had ideas. And the next year, year or two, they started developing those ideas in these small cell little contracting uh, or, you know, or research firms, essentially. They just went straight back to the garage, which was really cool. And I think that was a lot of the kind of fire in our belly for starting businesses at the time was because there was a vacuum that, you know, we needed a diversity in ideas and people needed you know, to be in their seats working and stuff they're really passionate about, you know? So that was, that was a strange time, but it was pretty great for that. It really stoked the fires for the last, you know, decade of that burgeoning STEM community and, and things like that. So, yeah. Fair enough. Dave had mentioned uh, the, a couple of tech giants here. We actually, uh, Boise, Idaho is the home of Micron Technology, which makes the RAM and a huge number of computing devices around the world. So their home base is here, even though their manufacturing has kind of moved elsewhere. But they still have a, a large engineering presence. <coughs> There's a <coughs> excuse me. All right, let's see here. What have I got on the next deal? So uh, you work on a lot of uh, uh, different projects, Dave. You're 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 kind. I would kind of consider you spread out. But how do you manage these? <laughs> yeah. uh, you got about five to ten different ideas going I, all the time. I love how, irons in the fire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do you manage that kind of a situation in your business? Well, I guess there's that set of like new ideas that you just sort of ruminate on. Um, that might seem kind of distracting and out of the context of what's currently paying the bills, you know. But just ideas of things you could that could exist, and just sort of roll them around in my head and and let them kind of build themselves, if you will, you know, for that just pure concept. And those are things that I haven't really started on, but they just kind of keep the idea of, you know, new stuff sort of like, they keep my inspiration up. Um, then, you know, there's there's some things that are uh, kind of like in an early development. And that's something where, again, I'm not spending a lot of like sitting down time really uh, working really hard on them, but I'm, you know, imagining the, the functions I might have to build or... Uh, maybe getting like early sets of parts so I'm, I'm still collecting parts and I like to be a really patient guy so if I'm still collecting parts I, I'm really not hands on building anything until I've got everything there in a box and I know I don't have to stop you know um, then and then there's that so th- that's all stuff that I'm probably just thinking about and I talk about randomly you know <laughs> uh my my wife calls it minecrafting because without any segue into a conversation, 
uh, one of our kids will just randomly tell you a fact about Minecraft. And so my default topic is always like robots or something. And so she could be telling me about her day. She'll go, how about, how about you? And I'll say, well, this robot. And I'll tell her about the robot <laughs> instead of how I feel or something like that, you know. Fair enough. Um, so when I've got all those parts and when that idea kind of seems pretty complete to me, what I might do is, is I'll go straight into kind of early drafts and iteration. And that for me is uh, a day to a week of just heavy, repeated iteration. And I basically work really hard on... Um, crafting pieces and prototyping and iterating on my on 3D printers, the laser cutters or you know even just hacking by hand um, a, an early prototype that as I sort of cheekily put it stops falling apart by itself you know but it's got to house that concept and it's kind of the first time it's really real and, and I can move it around and see it. After that I'll put it back on the shelf for a little while because I kind of just need to stare at it. And so that's when other projects at other stages may get that sort of first table time that, you know, that that early iteration phase happens. Um, But then from there, uh, there's a really long process of sort of preparing to, to make it into not a prototype or a project, but an actual product that people can use that gets them to the table and while maintaining that feeling of making that first thing for the first time, everyone's able to do it, and it's a it's a kit. It's a it's a concise piece with clear instructions that should fit together really well. You know, you'd be surprised how hard that is that is to get to sometimes. You know, it's it's a factor. So there's a lot of time there. Probably the most time is spent basically preparing those prototypes and streamlining them into some form of like beta kit that I can do in a small run. So with that method, there's probably many projects at different stages of that. And um, I'm, I've been lucky enough lately to one at a time when, when they're ready, you know, when they've gone through all those stages and I may have even built a few small batches and had workshops so the public can actually give their input, like, you know, real people building this tell me how they feel about it after a couple rounds of that i've got a pretty concise kit that that builds well i'll release it to like lately kickstarter or i've been thinking about just put toying around with other crowdfunding um platforms just to put them out in small runs and that way they're there's something that i can show the public and i'm comfortable with with uh you know, moving on because they still stay edgy. It's just has to be sort of stable before mass consumption hits. So, the last one was Plantoids, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. Yeah, uh, one I've had really good luck with is basically just our our uh, basic programmable robot. I call it a mini mob. It's uh, Arduino based um, breakout board of my design and. Um, <coughs> Laser cut parts I make in house, and those are something that there's probably a mini mob coast to coast now. We're still kind of small, independent production facility, but uh, we're starting to make our put pins on the map as far as how far mini mobs have reached. Um, so they've been a lot of fun to build. 
they're just they're a very affordable robot, but they've got a lot of function, and they're that launch pad I was talking about. So uh, you get one, and there's four structured lessons that you can do um, that teach you various aspects of the fundamentals of code, and then from there you can make your mob into a vehicle for whatever kind of experiment you want to work with. Now the mini mobs are interesting because you have a, 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 a unique construction technique that you use and that a lot of your kits really like zip ties. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why do you use <laughs> zip ties all the time? And what, what's like the design choice for that? You, you've asked me about this before. I think you were a little bit more frustrated sounding before. <laughs> like, why? I don't particularly <laughs> prefer them in so, like the projects I work on. But yeah, you use them a lot. Zip tie foo. It's just there's this... Uh, the factors about zip ties are that they're really replaceable. They're permanent until you don't want them to be. They're only a few simple sizes, and making uh, making structures that are stable in in their assembly, but have a little bit of like flex and move means you can be a little rougher with them. Like kids, or it flies off the table and stuff, and it just doesn't have to. You don't have to worry about it so much as opposed to thin-walled pieces or things like that. So zip ties really help kind of give it this uh, earthquake-proof sort of shape and feel that, that lets it move around. It's pretty forgiving. But at the same time, you figure out you've put a part together wrong, you can just clip it. Clip it and zip it. That's what I say. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that you, you chose them mainly for the, the durability of them. Because when I look at them, I think, oh, that's a, that's a, a very good use case for the STEM kits for young kids because they're fairly easy to manipulate for a kid. They understand how they work and how to put together as opposed to tiny screws, which is generally right. a very poor design choice if you're making a, a kit for sub-10-year-olds. They're just always so fiddly and nuts just poof. Right. You know? And it, you drop a zip tie, it's neon for one thing, right. and it's just like right there. And... Th- yeah, like screws, screws and hardware. If you want to make one connection, you're really actually dealing with three parts: your tool and the two things you need to put together. Whereas the zip tie is just one piece that connects two pieces together, and so still three pieces. <laughs> well, it's so your fastener but, is an assembly of three. You're using two pieces to connect two pieces with a screw and nut. Okay, the zip tie is the one piece. And you don't need the tool in your hand as well. Right. Because it's your hands that are the, the tool. The, sure. Yeah. So, the, yeah, it's just a little bit simpler. It's a little bit more direct. Kind of like uh, like origami levels of of construction technique, which is That's which a is good fun. analogy. Yeah. 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 Alrighty. I love Zip Typhoon, man. I'm going <laughs> to bring you over to the... No, I don't think you will. To the Zip Type <laughs> Wushu. I don't like them because the aesthetic <laughs> bothers me all the time. I'm kind of, I, I feel like a design snob. I probably am a snob about it or something like that. And I just can't stand zip ties because they, they look kind of jinky, even though functionally they're very good for what they do, for making sure. a good, easy-to-assemble kit, which is what the, the purpose is. Yeah. So the, the purpose should drive all, but I'm still snooty about it. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think I kill that uh, in my own mind, when I use neon zip ties, and then just they take that, it all the way that, over. Yeah, just all the way. Yeah, <laughs> and we've been using. So I'll, I'm doing a thing with mini mobs now where uh, we've got special sort of covers for them, 
And so when you see it, you see something that's an object. There's no, you know, exposed circuitry or wires sticking out or anything like that. Sure. Um, and it just completes the kit. And, and you don't have to see them, even if you know they're there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it makes it so much better. <laughs> As if any of these 5- to 10-year-old kids are going to care when they're building this no, thing. No, I, I, for the most part, I think kids agree with me where it's like, oh, yeah. as long as the zip ties are neon in many colors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All righty. So, uh, we had touched on this just a little bit earlier, but you recently ran a, a successful Kickstarter for a new kit that you made called Plantoids. Yep. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, the Plantoids are another kind of eclectic project in that they are robots where you use sensory data from a plant to control the robot. Now, there was a, a project on Kickstarter about four years ago where you had a robot that a goldfish controlled. And right. you looked, and apparently you looked at something like that and said, "I don't think the thing driving is stupid enough, so I'm going to use plants <laughs> and have it drive the robot." So why don't you unpack plantoids a little bit for us? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, I guess when I when I think about robots, I think about them as uh, like I read a really good thing in a in a book about Valentino Breitenberg, who, who created uh, he created uh, like phototropic robots uh, a long time ago with like tube technology right okay and so he made uh they're called breitenberg vehicles breitenberg vehicles are simple bug intelligence robots that simply react to light with their sensors and they're the they follow light or run away and he used them as a model where the vehicle demonstrated uh like an emotional intelligence love hate fear and confusion where it could love light so it drove towards light or if it was afraid of light you'd arrange the motors and and sensors in a different way and it would run away from light confusion means it went in circles and you know all that stuff right so i just it's always been one of those things in my head where robots are vehicles for us they're vehicles for us to learn they they help us we make them move so that we can see cool new stuff you know and um, so when I fell along Plantoids, it was kind of one of those things where I wanted the vehicle to really show me, uh, yeah, what that, what that plant is thinking. And I wanted to create a model of uh, rules f- uh, for the vehicle so that based on the profile of the plant, uh, the vehicle would then drive to sunnier places. Or if you add a certain kind of sensor that looks for humidity, it's going to you know, balance its position based on the humidity it's sensing. And so these first plantoid kits are kind of a getting started approach to those concepts. Um, I've actually been working on plantoids for about four or five years now, and they've ranged in prototypes all the way from these cool little Arduino-based robots that I just released to full um, Linux-driven mobile web servers that monitor plant life uh, with complex sensors that do like research quality uh, observations, and they're they're you know a very high level tool. The reason I've kind of wanted to start at the simplest with this pathway is that in sort of environmental science and a really kind of obscure uh, school of thought around plant signaling, where you're you're researching plants and how they respond to the world around them with you know 
cool stuff like micro vibrations or chemical responses and things like that. It was really high level, very obscure and very isolated forms of signaling. And so I wanted to create a pathway. I mean, it's really cool when you get into it, but it's so meta that the external view or just even an introductory view of it, you're just overwhelmed with, you know, words. I was like, what is that word I've never, ever read before? (laughs) And it turns out it may be like they just may have made it up. You know, <laughs> but how do you get, you know, people need to know because it's super important. It, it's a very important aspect of life sciences that informs a lot of what we do from um, food production to software algorithms are, you, you know, inspirations taken from plant signaling and observation, you know. So how do you get people started? And so I went back to, okay, it's got to be general use mainly off-the-shelf parts. Uh, Got to choose the plant carefully uh, because it needs to have both those cool, some cool signals, but also needs to be ready for, like, mainstream use and abuse almost. Um, so which mortal plant is going to be the hardiest stock for these adventures we send it on? That kind of a thing. And kind of settled around after a few iterations. Um, this is a... This... this plantoid kit we just released is the fourth iteration and the first one we've actually released so just took it back to like how simple survivable how effectively does it just wrap that concept of listening to the plant for those motivations into you know a kit that somebody could actually build for the first time whether it's their first robot or it's another cool robot they've never heard before you can you can get started and it's it's compelling you know I mean, we we basically sold them on Kickstarter as an invasion of robot cyborg overlords, you know, which is like the worst trope in the world. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I hate when people talk about the The, robot uprising or use that. Yeah, we embraced it because it's the irony is that they're only like six or eight inches big. So oh, right. it's like, yeah, they're small kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody gets that. Yeah. <laughs> but you're perpetuating the problem, Dave. <laughs> I like to throw the problem back on his face because I've never had a relationship like robots stealing our jobs, stuff like that. No. Like, I literally, like, have a job because of the robots I make. And everything that goes along with these robots that we make are job creators, you know, technology is infused into our lives and uh, we can embrace that in one way and have that help us but with concepts like the plantoids, we also need to know how technology can better our environment because that's a job in and of itself is stewarding the world we're in and creating things with an ethos that are uh, aware and attentive uh, to like making a better planet, you know so that's a robot's direct job. And I have no guarantees what will happen if we get in the way of the plantoid. I'm just kidding. I'm going. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't have any armament yet. The they rule on this show water. is we don't talk about the robot uprising Uh-oh. unless there's absolutely nothing else to talk about. You need a buzzer <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> it comes up every show because there's no way to get around it. But. <laughs> It irks me. Straight there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's anyway, swing back. Yeah, exactly. Let's circle the toilet bowl. <laughs> uh, with the plantoids, uh, 
Can you kind of describe what they look like and how they function? Like when a, when a person is working with these or when they get the kit, what are they, how do they look for those who don't have a picture in front of them right now? Okay, so, I mean, you can envision them basically, they, they're a little uh, six by six, like six inch by six inch wide, um, like vehicle with a, with a two wheel drive. You can set them up either with kind of a tractor wheel setup, so two driven wheels in the back and then two kind of idling wheels in front. Or we have some tank treads uh, that they can that you can put on to give it a, a treaded look and feel, depending on whatever you want to do. Uh, they're made of different colors of acrylic plastic in a laser cut acrylic sheet. There's a sort of like column in the back that uh, mounts a, a round terrarium, like a four inch terrarium ball, and then there is where you stick your plant specimen. So it's kind of like a like a little vehicle, like a tank, where the the central fuselage is this plastic uh, terrarium ball where a plant sits. And then from there, there's like peripheral sensors you attach, and there's a like power supply on the back. Um, so the sensors we work with with the the simple plantoids are ambient light, uh, humidity and temperature, uh, maps gases. So we're picking um, natural gases like CO2, some light VOC, uh, stuff like that, and an RGB LED. And so it's not a sensor, but it's our indicator. So those are the peripherals that are on it. Are those monitoring the plant or the environment? So you localize them. You stick them right around the plant. Uh, we will add an immersed soil sensor, but they tend to degrade, and then they foul up the soil. So we're not using those right now, and we're basically sticking that ranged uh, that D DHT eleven humidity sensor uh, right on the back and really close to the plant. So it's the immediate you know humidity. There's always if the soil is wet, there's always a little bit of humidity about a half inch above the soil. So, so then would it be accurate to say that you you're not quite like reading the plant's thoughts, but you're trying to anticipate the plant's needs. Yeah, so yeah, we're not in the plant. Okay. Yeah. That's where we get back to those those really high level, you know, sensors that are really like listening to the plant themselves. Uh they're they're not able to be built yet in any affordable way, and they're such a careful thing that uh some of them are actually still like pretty invasive to the plant. So it t- makes the mortality rate pretty crazy pretty crazy drop. Uh what we can achieve is Around the immediate area, um, we can give those. We can look for signals from the plant and uh, code the Arduino to basically have a profile for care, so that the vehicle itself is extending those those signals that the plant needs. So the signal we're picking up are low light, uh, low to no humidity, bad gas in the environment, and then the plantoid is able to pick up move or change its behavior to 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 respond to those inputs there gotcha yeah, yeah. we we will tape up a plant someday with its own like version of an ecg but unfortunately even like microcurrents tend to tend to start some rot and decay on any plant so it's actually kind of not my way you know we're supposed to be bettering the environment not uh torturing it one plant it'll grow back well <laughs> you sh- you'd be surprised yeah, how quickly uh people become empathic to the life of their 
you tell them their robot's alive, and the whole point is to keep it alive, and people latch on, you know? Uh, so I had a, a, a lady who is piloting a plantoids workshop in her uh, programs at a public botanical garden, and very, very, very early on, we weren't even really, like, officially um, releasing it yet. It was before the Kickstarter, and she had named her plantoid. She had named the plant on it. She was, uh, yeah, she was just most concerned with the life that I was seeing, and I was kind of cavalier about, you know, well, if it dies, I'll, I'll ship you another one. And she's like, Midge? Midge wouldn't do that, you know? <laughs> I didn't realize that, you know, it can go that... Yeah. Go that deep, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, you you launched these things on Kickstarter uh, five, four months ago? In, uh, yes. In 26, which month of 2016? I believe it was... Or 2017, I guess. August. I know it ended September 8th. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and they're, the batch is shipping now. You got yours today. Sure did. check you off you the backer list. The yeah. So why you, you did it on Kickstarter... Why? Why did you choose to go with crowdfunding and then Kickstarter specifically to launch your robotics product? Well, so I had I had been on Kickstarter. I backed a lot of projects on Kickstarter, just you know, as an individual. And then I had four or five drafts of campaigns that I'd written over the years, and I just kept tabling them. It kind of in that preparation mode where I've got a solid prototype and I want to. I want to start scaling it up, and I guess you could just call it I was I was just sort of self-teaching uh, how to use a crowdfunding platform well. The reason I stayed with Kickstarter was it's, a, it's the one I had the most, like, knowledge and history with, number one. Um, two, I still saw a lot of small you know, robotics, like technology campaigns being successful. Uh, yours were a big, you know, inspiration because you got a good method to, you know, and a good size. None of us are like shooting for the moon. We're trying to make cool robots into successful and viable platforms. And that starts with like a, you know, just being able to build the first hundred kind of a goal was, was where I was at. So that was still able to be done on, on Kickstarter and, and uh, I I had never launched one, and so Plantoids I'd had a draft for years, and I had changed it several times, and I just felt like they were ready. You know, it took that long for my kind of first one to actually mature into something that I wanted to press the go button on, but uh, yeah, and it worked out okay. I there's some things about Kickstarter that you could say are you know pros and cons, but. I didn't really feel like I had any practical experience until I had ran a a campaign to success before I could, you know, really see what those flesh those out. So, what are some of those things that popped up or that you learned from it? I guess. Well, so one thing that I didn't quite understand before versus after is is you still bring your crowd to the show. Uh, if you're we're in Boise, so. There's a lot of people here, but then uh, sort of geolocation and people's search data and stuff that Kickstarter uses to show front page results to people. Um, outside of Boise, it's really hard to kind of gain that virality. So uh, we did a lot of, of formal advertising 
Um, I guess I shouldn't say that this was my first successful Kickstarter, but I had run a spectacularly failed Kickstarter before, too. And that taught me a lot about that. Um, some of the pros, though, are that if you can kind of meet that that metric data, you will get people to see your your project. You will get people to view it. It's just you've got to have all your tools, and you have to use all of them. Otherwise, uh, any, any one thing dropping off, you know, you get those feelings midway through the campaign where you're like, oh, this is, this is a bad day. And then you get a pledge, and you're like, yes, we're back <laughs> on the ship, guys, you know. So it's a roller coaster, but it is some of the positives are that you really do, uh, it's authentic when it comes to that, that release, like that first public release. Uh, I was startled when five continents are going to have a kick, like a plantoid on them. I mean, uh, to one or two people in Australia, you, you know, one or two people in Asia and Africa and things like that, but they'll, they'll contact you and actually nobody from Asia. Um, but yeah, okay. like the EU and everything like that. So right. what kind of tools were you using to promote and grow and make the, the campaign successful? What were your action items? So, uh, video was number one. Almost, I think that that's probably the basis for 80% of people to make a decision. Sure. Uh, and that's where I failed the most is I, I'm good at creating something you could film, but as far as filming that and creating a concise message, um, that was really hard for me. So I, I had some help doing that uh, with our video. Uh, making the uh, making the description, I, I tend to think that... Uh, the best description is the most technical and detailed one, and that tends to glaze people's eyes over. So, just writing something that was consistent, spoke to a message, you know, and, and had a good narrative about it. Um, online media and marketing, you have to have something to post and promote. And so, I, I tuned all of the normal advertising that I normally do and and you know spent a fair percentage of of my own funds just to kind of keep the word out and keep hits going and and so sp- sponsoring ads and things like that were those through like Facebook and Google or were they more specific on like blogs or what kind of advertising was that so there were a few write-ups uh that we did with the press release and then we kept boosting those posts when they came back because somebody else would cover us we'd reach out and really create a, like a, a, a relationship with whoever liked our stuff. There was an, there was an article in Hungary that when translated got it completely wrong, but we still reached out. It was, it was the most hilarious article to Google translate, but yeah, we would do that. Google SEO, Facebook advertising, um, just kind of like, like strong metered posts where we changed up the target audience a lot. Cause sometimes Facebook's algorithms tend to just show you, show the ad to one person a lot versus sending it out a few times to lots of different types of people. So, with like who they've profiled. So we were doing a lot of that. Uh, yeah, full press release, um, trying to get people to just like see it, unbox it, and review it. Um, there was something I if there was something I could do every day, then I did it. Yeah. Fair enough. 
Yeah. Would you do it again? Did you like the Kickstarter experience after it was all done? Or yeah, I would. Did it be a regular thing? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am more discerning now of what projects I have coming up that I feel are appropriate to the platform. And, but I would. Uh, I will also try in the future just doing independent crowdfunding campaigns that I have a little bit more creative control of that maybe don't have, uh, I mean, that that separate sort of body like Kickstarter is that's billboarding their own favorite things and kind of adding to the hype with their partnership. So maybe we'll lose that, but there's some projects that I feel are, they're sort of niche enough that they could go on for a little longer and, you know, maybe develop a group or community, possibly the same size, but in a more trickling in way rather than a, like a sort like a wave of hype, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. You should. Uh, what is that website we started trying? Oh, Celery. Try Celery is a pre-ordering system that is trickle in because you basically just list it on the website and then people can pre-order your object for however long it is and you just right. give them updates. Um, celery. Celery. It's, okay. it's tricelery.com. They're not a sponsor. I'm just saying, <laughs> bringing it up. We are uh, unaffiliated with yeah, tricelery.com. We are, affiliated. <laughs> we are just fans. Yep. Uh, but yeah, tricelery is a good pre-ordering platform. Okay. If you want a, a slow feed crowdfund um, that's off of your own organic traffic or on your own website or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I got to keep... Uh, Changing, like being consistent with what works, and Kickstarter works well for uh, projects that are timed right, that are the right content. And there's things that maybe are ready, and I don't want to have to wait on that. I just want to see if they kind of uh, fly or die. Like if people like it, sure, you know, I'll, I'll keep going. We'll keep building a community around it. Or if they hate it, or th- there's uh, obvious things that they pick up that need to be work worked on then they stay at that research level and there's not that deadline and all of this, you know, kind of like need for outlay to to try to spin up a success where it really should just stay and keep kind of ruminating and, and streamlining before it actually needs that, you know? So right. longer term crowdfunding thing where people are a little bit more aware of some of the back-end research would be something I'd like to look at because it's, it's hard to really... Uh, spend any amount of time on Kickstarter telling people pertinent information about what you're actually doing for them in the history of it, you know, what got you there. They just want to know what got you there and when they're going to get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's pretty accurate. All yeah. right. Well, let's see here. What have I got on the next deal? So, augmented reality. Um, you've been toying around with this for a little while and it, it comes up very often when we've talked to each other uh, but you're trying to use augmented reality in conjunction with your robotics kits um, to to help the learning experience can you unpack that a little bit yeah so um, uh, especially with like the mini mobs there's there's a lot of sort of integration that these new augmented reality aspects to like you know interactive media and game design uh there's a lot of stuff that's sort of i'm seeing that it's not built yet that a practical robotics platform could really use 
one of the things I want to do is is make sort of a holographic tutorial so that there's something with you and the parts are all object scanned and they help you, you know, build your robot up. Um, something that stays looking hands-on, which is really good about augmented reality because it doesn't slap a screen in front of your face like VR and isolate you. It simply adds another layer, another interactive medium onto the world you see. So as that's arriving and that's becoming more achievable and we're at this point with like STEM and robotics where there's a lot of sort of fundamental lessons that you could almost say are like defaulted into robotics education. So like what? Like your sumo and line following, you know, uh, at at some levels like a maze bot. Those those projects and activities have been around for like a long time. Like they've been used through every generation of of uh, robotics and for a reason they're they're productive ways to teach those fundamentals um, but with AR you can sort of add another layer of immersion on that or tell yourself a more expansive story based on what you're seeing and you can animate visuals especially explanatory visuals onto the robot so somebody's understanding they don't have to look away or pay attention to you know, watch a video or something like that, they can just look at their robot and the robot is then helping to do the explaining. And so we are, are doing things where um, through building controllers in video game editors such as Unity, we're sort of bonding the hardware with the augmented reality sort of intangible so that the mini-mobs themselves are sort of like a game controller that you do, you know, like in Arena but you can see these processes that the almost see what the bot's thinking through you know billboarding their sensor data and animating effects around them so you can see their sensors working and it it just helps to kind of drive the connective nature cuz that's a really tough thing about all electronics is until you make some sort of display there's really no way to tell like you know how how do I tell what my ambient light sensor is reading when that's like a number value and I can see how bright it is, but it's, you know, it's hard to connect. It's hard to make it intuitive. And so if there's some way we can intuitively display those sensors so that they see that real time data, then it's really simple to do. It's not quite, you know, I'm not quite seeing any mainstream products out there that that are, are doing that yet. I'm sure I just started the time, the clock. So what would we say, like six months before we oh, start probably. seeing that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, with August that, 2018, mini mobs yeah, there have to be AR totally, <laughs> which will happen, yeah. All right, very cool. Uh, with, the, with the AR, though, you're, why, uh, you're trying to display data or information on top of the mini mobs, mobs in a, a tutorial format. Why have the physical component? Why not just simulate a robot in AR or VR entirely and just eliminate the, the extra cost of the hardware and everything else? Why not just go completely digital and still have that interactivity but with a digital robot? So it comes down to being hands-on. And that tactile essence, it's real. You know, it's something you still need to do. I feel like with that virtual sense, you're still emulating 
And what I want to do is create more immersion around like physical, real, you know, practical things. Like our, our core goal is to, is to get people hands on with science and technology. And so it's, it's really not extra. It's the formative. And for me, that AR is kind of the, the frosting on the cake, you know, and it's fun. It makes it more fun, but the core fundamentals have to be there. You know, real technology and tangible things are, are super important. So that's why we don't go like virtual is because ultimately there's still that step to translate it to like real life, you know, real technology and like that, that tactile skill that you get from building a robot, typing the code, making it run, you know. Well, I we I, again again you can simulate that kind of thing. Like I can create a, a version, an AR version of a resistor, and say, well, you got to put it in this direction, and these are what the bars mean, and you got to build the circuit in AR. What? How does the tactile component? What what does it add, or what are you trying to achieve with that? What is the the true true benefit of that that the kids are taking away from it, other than the the knowledge of how to work with technology? It's a separation from if it's virtual then they still haven't done it yet. Okay. You know, they're not, you're still not meeting, you still haven't done it yet. I I want you to actually build a robot because only then have you done it. That's where the empowerment happens, you know? Okay. Uh, If we work through simulations, if we want to, say, uh, take somebody through a pathway, you know, totally virtually, all we're going to do is back off that time when they actually do it for the first time, you know, because you got to get there, right? Eventually it's, you're in the seat, it's your job. And if we've only taught somebody to make an emulation of real technology, then, and told them that this is going to drive them into a pathway where they actually work with real technology, it's, it's hard to, you know, unless it's exclusively VR, I don't know how we could translate that you know so you don't think that uh ar vr training in a a physical context will ever be a good precursor to actually doing it or a well i i should rephrase that not a precursor but as a substitute to it of learning how to put together a circuit in vr and understanding how the components have to be aligned and stuck together and everything else everything except how to physically solder is taught in vr that's not good enough or valuable in the, the continuation? Or well, I guess I see it on a spectrum Okay. where if it's 100% virtual, that eliminates like any safety risk. Like think of the medical field. Right. They're doing training in VR because there's zero medical risk, but it can get you to halfway, right? And then halfway is, from halfway on, it's, it's basically AR. You're working on a, a real dummy, Right. Um, you know, with with synthetic parts, and and then the AR is giving you that that last you know bit of re, like that virtual reality. So that whatever left is being simulated, you taper that off till eventually they are a real doctor, and they're working with real life humans saving lives. So I, I see it in that way where it has its use, but there's that gradient that by the end it's like okay. Take the goggles off, you know, 
and and you've had a real object in front of you maybe the last half of your way, but now you're trained enough through this gradient that you're more comfortable now working with the real setting, you know? And if we imagine that in an engineering environment, it's like safety risks of robots, obvious one, batteries, right? So, I mean, yeah, in VR, if you can teach a kid or VR or AR to plug in a you know lithium-ion battery correctly the first time, huge plus, you know? But eventually... It's a battery. You, they got to have the real thing in front of them eventually, you know. So, right. I think they're very supportive, you know. And, and there's that there is that pathway, but it's got to be like an established, you know, pathway. I think robotics are easy enough that if you, st- you can start with that real live object, and kind of leapfrog where it's virtualized and where it's not with the augment, you know, like augmented reality stuff. So. It, say you have your parts laid out and you have your battery holder then the animation would tag those and then show you an animation about where things go three times right. and then you can do it <laughs> odds of success skyrocket you oh know? yeah because yeah, there's always right. that that one kid in the workshops that right. like intuitively knows how to make batteries into a welder <laughs> yeah yep yeah those oh, yeah, are the yeah. ones like like Harry Potter learning the fireball spell oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. So, uh, what are kind of your ultimate goals or plan for the future from here? Where are you going from now? On. So next big thing. Um. Yeah. You know, I've I've got all those projects that are kind of running through um, development cycles, and there's a couple more robots on the horizon. Probably one or two that will continue to release in 2018. Uh, mini mobs are getting their uh, augmented reality development, and so that's kind of something we're going to focus on really hard uh, until summertime when we're going to do like local workshops at schools across the Treasure Valley. Um, again, those those just last steps where the community's involved in kind of finishing up, tying up all the features of those new additions to the mini mob kits. Um, yeah, so a couple new platforms uh, that I'm just kind of waiting for the right time. Still trying to decide if Kickstarter's uh, the right one for a couple of them. And uh, yeah, so all the robots all the time. Fair enough. Yeah, making stuff. Yeah, cool. Nice. Well, Dave, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs>